this weekend really represents uh, a pause in the life of our nation. And it has uh, nothing to do with Labor Day. The few days between the Republican and the Democratic National Conventions uh, really give anyone who's paying attention or who cares about these things um, time to analyze uh, the differences between the two parties and to hear the messages that are being given. And much of the reason why our nation is in so much trouble right now is because there is so much uh, disunity between the ruling factions. There's very little agreement, very little consensus on what needs to be done. And uh, there is uh, that, that really comes about because there's such a stark disagreement in philosophy on things like economic policy and social issues and the importance of the Constitution, which I can't believe we're debating, and values and morality. So these conventions that we're watching, and I hope you watched at least part of the last one or watch at least part of the next one, these conventions are designed to highlight the contrasts. And what's interesting in our history and what's interesting right now in September 2012 is that probably more so, I believe more so than any time since 1980, not only are the contrasts forcing people to choose what they believe, but they're also making all of us decide exactly which of two very opposite directions we want the country to go in. And what's ironic about it is that both sides will tell you that the other's path leads to destruction. That the other party has your worst interests in mind, that they want to destroy what the country's doing, that, that everything you believe in is going, to be, is going to be ravaged if you follow what they say. Now, uh, even... Uh, you know, and even because of that, that, that you should avoid following them at all costs. Even the president uh, just yesterday said something that highlighted this thought, and I didn't plan on this quote until I saw it last night. He said, this week I will offer you what I believe is a better path forward, a path that grows this economy, creates more good jobs, and strengthens the middle class. I'm glad he waited till now to give this to us. Um, he said, the good news is that you get to choose which path we take we can take their path or we can take the path that I'm going to present. Now, in case you didn't count, he used the word path five different times in two sentences. And though I'm going to assume that he wouldn't tell us that the other party doesn't want to grow the economy and doesn't want to create more jobs and doesn't want to um, strengthen those of us who are pawns in the middle class, um, he was definitely trying to say, that there is, a conver there is a divergence of paths. That the path that he's suggesting is different than the path that the other party's suggesting, and we need to decide which path is the better plan. Now, life is full of choices, and even though most of them aren't quite that dramatic, we constantly have to weigh what we believe is right in our lives. And even more importantly, we have to weigh what matches and advances our values, especially our spiritual values. That's far more important than the economy. It's far more important than, than uh, issues of national defense or whatever the case may be. It, it is important that we learn our beliefs from the Word of God and that we establish in our minds as believers that that is the right path for everything. Now, we're blessed this morning to hold this book in our hands, right? 
right? People all over the world wish they could hold this book in their hands and worship publicly. We're blessed to hold this book in our hands. We're blessed to have the Word of God at our disposal. We're blessed to know the truth and to learn about Jesus Christ, learn about God's instructions and His expectations for us and His mercy and to teach us doctrine and to show us the way to live so that He'll be pleased and so that we'll be holy. And every time we study it, every time we hear His voice through His Word, we have a choice to make. Whether we will walk in the way that He calls us to walk or whether we'll ignore what He says. Now that's what Israel found out in our text this morning and this is in Jeremiah chapter 6. Jeremiah did not have the easiest calling for his ministry. He had a very difficult pulpit, so to speak. Because as he was told by the word of the Lord to go to the people of Judah and to preach to them, the message that God gave him to tell the people was, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Now, no preacher, no pastor, no teacher likes to give bad news. We all want to be liked. We're all insecure. We all want to give something that will encourage people and will strengthen them. And they will say, I'm glad I heard the word of God this morning. But Jeremiah's message was, Israel, you're going to, uh, Judah, excuse me, you're going to be destroyed. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And armies from the north are going to come down and they're going to invade and they're going to devastate the land. And the reason for this is because you've been unfaithful to God and because you've been worshiping Baal instead of God. Now, that's not a very fun message, is it? That's not exactly user-friendly. But the people had become so spiritually hard-hearted that they had started to build altars to Baal and started to worship him, and it got so bad that they were sacrificing their own children as offerings to this false god. So the Lord says, I'm going to send famine upon the land. Famine is always a sign of God's judgment. He said, I'm going to send famine upon the land, and I'm going to allow you to be invaded and taken into captivity. And when Jeremiah hears this message, when he hears God say, that's what you're supposed to tell the people, he becomes completely brokenhearted. In fact, he's known as the weeping prophet because the message that he had to deliver was so sad to him and so tragic to him that, that he had to take this message to people whose rebellion and sin was so deep. And he knew that the Lord wouldn't let that go. The Lord couldn't overlook this. But his words aren't just to the nation. A lot of times we see God address the nation as a whole. Jeremiah is a very personal book. It very much speaks to the individual uh, and, and the importance of our relationship with God and the need to obey the Lord despite what's going on around us and what's happening in the culture and what other people are doing. Jeremiah is very individualistic in his message. And that's an important message for us today. Because no matter what's going on in our country this morning, no matter what direction we think is good or bad, no matter what the circumstances are around us or what other believers are doing, it is vitally important that we as individual believers and then collectively as a church be following the Lord in every single way. Because ultimately, we're going to stand before the Lord, each one of us, and He's going to say, what did you do with Christ? What did you do with my, with my commands? What did you do with what I told you, with my word? And we're not going to be able to say to him, well, Lord, the culture was really bad. You just, you can't imagine what it was like. It was so degraded and so lost and so evil. 
And, and we can't say, well, well, my neighbor didn't go to church and didn't worship God, and the people around me didn't, didn't do what they were supposed to do. I didn't have a support system. We can't stand that. We're going to stand before the Lord God Almighty by ourselves, and he's going to say, you and me, what happened? And if we've walked in holiness and trusted in Christ, we can say, I'm, I'm completely unable to be here apart from Christ. Christ redeemed me and saved me, and I walked in holiness and followed the word of God and trusted you. And God will say, well done. We have to live our lives, believer, this morning. We have to live our lives independently of everything else if that's going to be an excuse to us. We're responsible and accountable to the Lord alone. And that's what he told Judah. What was difficult about his insight was that it was coming when things were spiritually good. Jeremiah didn't start preaching when things were going downhill. He started preaching when everything was where it was supposed to be. He started his, his uh, ministry during the reign of King Josiah. Josiah was a good king. He reformed the nation. He called it to repentance from the wickedness of his father and his grandfather. And he tore down the altars and tore down the places of worship to false gods. But despite his efforts, the sin of the nation was so ingrained in their hearts that even as he uh, made those reforms, the people still kept wandering away from God and worshiping idols. And then Josiah died. And here's Jeremiah standing there as the only voice of reason. And as he's talking to them and warning them, the people are saying, that's nice, Jeremiah, but we really want to worship our false gods. Jeremiah basically has a congregation of zero. He keeps talking to the people, keeps warning the people, keeps bringing them the word of the Lord, keeps being broken by the sin of the people, and they just didn't listen because at the time they felt protected. They felt secure. They didn't believe that anything was going to happen even as their sin was exposed. So in chapter 3, don't go back, you can look at it later, the Lord calls them to repentance to acknowledge their sin. And when they don't, in chapter 4, he says, you better get out of Jerusalem. You better get to the mountains. You better flee the city because the Babylonians are coming. And they're going to devastate this town. And the people of God were nonplussed. They thought, well, even if that does happen, and it won't, God wouldn't allow that. Even if it does happen, we'll, we'll have time to react. See, that's what happens when our hearts get hardened. That's what happens when our hearts get, get distracted toward the Lord because of sin and pride starts to interfere with repentance. What happens is we develop a dullness in our awareness of what's happening around us. So instead of being uh, disturbed by the moral degradation of our culture, we become comfortable with it and we learn to accept it. And maybe we even start to participate in it and and eventually we'll condone it. Instead of standing for Christ and, and, and saying, He is the Savior, He's the only one who can redeem you, and, and being bold in our witness, we become hesitant to make waves in the name of cultural sensitivity and relevance. And, and instead of clinging to the Word and being guided by it in everything, we, we soften it and we, we become selective with it, and we start to adapt it and, and, and just kind of make it fit what we want. Israel had that problem. Judah had that problem. 
In fact, they had four primary problems. We're going to look at them in a minute because they serve as a warning and a spiritual evaluation to us. But let's start by reading this text. I know that's a long introduction. Look at chapter 6 of Jeremiah, start in verse 6. He says, For thus says the Lord of hosts. Now stay with me because this is kind of an odd text. Cut down her trees and cast up a siege against Jerusalem. This is the city to be punished in whose midst there is only oppression. As a well keeps its waters fresh, so she keeps keeps fresh her wickedness. Violence and destruction are heard in her. Sickness and wounds are ever before me. Be warned, O Jerusalem, or I shall be alienated from you and make you a desolation, a land not inhabited. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they will thoroughly glean as the vine the remnant of Israel. Pass your hand again like a grape gatherer over the branches. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are closed and they cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord has become a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. But I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I am weary with holding it in. Pour it out on the children in the street and on the gathering of young men together. For both husband and wife shall be taken, the aged and the very old. Their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields and their wives together. For I'll stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They've healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, what there is no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They were not even ashamed at all. They didn't even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I will punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. And I set watchmen over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. Therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth, behold, I'm bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their plans, because they've not listened to my words, and as for my law, they've rejected it also. And that's kind of a depressing passage, isn't it? And I've struggled with this because in September of 2012, a Labor Day weekend, what do we need to hear? I would hope that that wouldn't describe us in any way. I hope that we're not anywhere close to that. I would hope that God would not be saying to us as believers or us as a congregation, hey, devastation is coming. But I was struck as I was watching the convention this past week and as we anticipate the next one to come and the things that we know will be said, I was struck by the fact that maybe this is a message to our nation. And as believers, we need to be the ones that are standing firm in verse 16 as all this chaos is around us. What's going to make a difference? Is it going to be a politician who says he has the answers? Is it going to be some act of Congress to be the Supreme Court? What will make a difference in our nation is people who are standing in the ancient paths. What will make a difference is believers and churches who are standing for the Lord without equivocation. Because I have to believe, and this has been in my heart since about Thursday night, I have to believe that the words of Isaiah, excuse me, Jeremiah 6, have some relevance to us as a nation. That there's something here that God is saying, you better be careful, 
you better understand that this is not all just going to be wonderful and it's not just all peace, peace, and everything's hunky-dory for the next thousand years. It doesn't work that way. It's not going to be that way. So what do we need to hear this morning as a church? We need to hear the warning signs. We need to hear, the. we need to have an, an awareness of what happens as a slide begins. Because not only do we have to be careful not to fall into that, but we also have to be warning others of the danger of it. So let's look this morning at four distinct things. Now, this text is kind of hard to wrap our hands around because it it just has a lot of words and, and metaphors and pictures that we don't necessarily understand. They're not necessarily to us. And yet the way the Lord speaks here and the way he describes what's going on offers a lot of insight. Look back at verse 2. I know we didn't read it. But in verse 2, he calls Judah the comely and dainty one. It's a strange description for talking about the people of God. But he says, you're a, you're a comely and dainty nation. In other words, you're this, you're this uh, little, soft, beautiful, little fragile thing. And, and the nations of the world are preparing to attack you with full force. In other words, Judah, hear this this morning, the matchup couldn't be more unequal. You are a soft, delicate little girl that is going to get beaten up and savaged. And not only are you not prepared for it, you're not even aware that's going to happen, and I'm telling you in advance. And even when I tell you, there's no move to repent, there's no move to call on the Lord for help, you're just going to lounge around in your self-sufficiency and see what happens. Now it's not hard, and I'm not trying to be political or patriotic this morning, please understand what I'm saying, but it's, it's not hard to picture our country in that. It's not hard to look at our nation and say, we're oblivious to what's going on around us. We're oblivious to what the world has planned. In fact, we're playing into our hands. We haven't listened to prophecy of what God says the end of the world will look like. We're just kind of sitting here, twiddling our thumbs, thinking about ourselves. And we need to wise up and see the signs of the times around us. The reason for the problem is the same in both instances, whether these words are to Judah or whether these words are to us. And verse 7 describes it this way. Look back at it. He says, As a well keeps its waters fresh, so this nation keeps fresh her wickedness. What does that mean? It means sin had become natural to them. Like needing a drink of water every day. Like when you wake up in the morning and your mouth's kind of dry, especially as we'll start to turn on the heat in a couple months. You wake up, you know that feeling? It's like cotton mother. I need some water. I can't even talk. And you need that fresh water to kind of wake you up and start your day and you brush your teeth and then you're all minty fresh and you're just kind of ready to go. And then you get more water and you take a shower and it kind of wakes you up and then you drink nine cups of coffee and then you're really going. You, you, you gotta, you gotta have that fresh stuff each morning. Well, he says, that's what sin's like to you. It's like the water you drink in the morning. Every day it's fresh to you. You love it. And then he goes on to add in verse 10, who, who can I speak to here that, that has an ear to hear me? Who's gonna listen to this? 
Behold, their ears are closed and they cannot listen. And the word of the Lord has become a reproach to them and they have no delight in it. I can't imagine anything that could be said about a nation that would be worse than this. That God says, I'm speaking and I can't find anybody to listen. I want to tell you a message, but everybody's ears are closed. And I can't imagine a worse thing that he could say about a nation that knows and has seen what he has done and has been blessed by him. And I can't imagine to go a step further, a worse thing to be said to a church. We never want to hear from the Lord, I'm speaking and you won't listen. We never want to hear the Lord say, I'm here, ready to be called on, ready to be answered, because I'm an answering God. I've given you my word, but you've neglected it. You call on my name, but you don't call with sincerity, so I'm not responding. And I'm waiting to tell you things, but you just won't listen. You're distracted, you're disheartened, whatever the case may be. But I'm talking, and the ears are closed. I, I pray to the Lord that that could never even begin to remotely be said about this church or about you or about me. Because when that happens, we're in major trouble. But that's the scenario here. They didn't delight in his word. This was God's people. They lived in the place where his temple was, the place of his presence, the place of his mercy. He says it's about to be destroyed by the Babylonians because of your sin. And you don't care. In fact, you're not even listening. My prophet's talking to you and you're going, da, 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 da. We don't care what he has to say. God says it's coming. Look at verse 11. It's a very scary and tragic and sobering verse. Jeremiah speaks to the Lord when he says, I am so full of the wrath of the Lord and I'm weary of holding it in. I'm so full of the wrath of the Lord. In other words, I have been holding it in. We know that God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and rich in love. But at this point, he's hit his breaking point. It takes a lot for the Lord to hit his breaking point, but you never want to see it when he hits it. I believe he's hitting his breaking point with our nation. I believe he's tired of it. And now in this text, his weariness is exhausted and he says, I'm going to pour out my wrath and I'm going to discipline you and everybody's going to experience it from children to adults to greatest to leadest, uh, to least, even the corrupt priests and the prophets, even the land itself. And in case we say, well, all right, that's harsh of the Lord. See this? This proves everything I've heard. The culture tells us that God isn't allowed to be upset by our sin and that he can't be loving if he's going to discipline people who spit in his face and mock him. He's just supposed to stand there and take it because he's the God of love. So God's not allowed to respond. You want to bet? Look at the reason for his actions in verse 15. He said, I've held it in. I've been patient. I've gotten weary. 
But here's what really has made it break. You're not ashamed of your sin. See, God is patient and compassionate. He's not a fool, but He's patient and compassionate. When we truly repent of our sin, and we're ashamed of our sin, and we're sorry for our sin, because we know it drives us away from Him. But when we stop being ashamed of sin, and this can happen to a believer who's been saved 40 years. When we stop being ashamed of our sin, that's when God says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not putting up with that. The word in the text is the word abomination. It's a purposely strong word the Spirit uses. It means a detestable, disgusting, wicked action. In other words, they weren't just passive. They weren't just saying, well, we're kind of, I don't know, God, we're kind of weighing it out. They had purposely chosen what was nasty and unthinkable and evil, and they had no shame and no regret about it to the point that God says, you don't even know how to blush anymore. You're not even embarrassed by it. These are supposed to be God's people. These are the ones who were walking by the temple and knew the Ark of the Covenant was inside and were in the land that God had led them to. How did they get to this point? How did they reach this? 114 years before, Israel had been taken into captivity. They would not be restored until 1948. So for 114 years, for 11 decades, they had seen that the nation of Israel was gone. The ten tribes were gone. It was just the two of them. They were up in Assyria. There was no returning. There was no restoration. The nation was gone. So they had 11 decades of perspective of what happens if you rebel against the Lord. But still, they got smug. And still, they got calloused in their hearts. So they get to the point where Jeremiah comes along and he says, listen, judgment's coming. And within 22 years of Jeremiah's message, the nation's gone. Jerusalem is devastated. The temple is destroyed. And they've been taken into captivity. So that begs the question, how did this happen? How did they get to that And it applies to individuals as much as it applies to the nation. The answer is very plain. It's very foundational. It's not trendy or innovative. In fact, I would say when you hear it, you will almost think that's an oversimplified statement. But God answers them and he says, this is how you got here. And this is what You should have done. Look at verse 16 again. Let's read it again. Thus says the Lord. Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. It's the only positive in the midst of all these verses warning. But they said, We will not walk in them. The Lord tells them to stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths. But Judah not only doesn't want to do that, they're intentionally defiant at the end of the verse. And their rebellion sprang from four distinct choices that they made instead of seeking and obeying 
God's word. And the reason I want to identify them this morning, and by identifying them, is we're going to actually define what the Lord means when he talks about these ancient paths. See, Judah did what happens in Romans 1, where it says, people substituted the truth of God for a lie. But instead of lust and moral deviance and sins of the flesh like Romans 1 talks about, their sin was much more rooted in their hearts and minds. And it showed itself in a couple ways. Maybe write these down or just listen really well now. The first way this happened is they became calloused toward the word of the Lord. They became calloused toward the word of the Lord. If you go all the way back to Exodus 19, and we've talked about it before, but let me just summarize it again. As Moses prepares to go up to Sinai to meet the Lord and to receive the law, the Lord says, I'm going to come in a black cloud, and I'm going to do that so the people may hear when I speak to you. I want you to hear that. Because as Moses goes up for 40 days, as he descends into the darkness of the mountain, where this huge cloud has covered it, the people are at the base, they're not allowed to go up, only he and Aaron can go up, uh, excuse me, only he and Joshua can go up. And and he says to them, I'm going to speak to you, but as I speak to you, the people are going to hear what I'm saying. Now this is right after, I mean a couple verses after, the people have said to the Lord, we will do everything that you say to do. So God says, great, I'm going to tell you now what I want you to do. Moses goes up to the mountain. God gives him the Ten Commandments. And the first two commandments are, have no other gods and don't make any graven idols. It's the first two things God says as he begins to tell them the law. But Moses stays up there too long in the people's minds. And they start to get impatient. Because God's word didn't mean that much to them. And they weren't fully committed to it in their hearts and minds. So they proceed to step on the first two commandments. You will have no other gods and you will not build any graven images. So what do they do? They they build a graven image of a golden calf and they fall down and worship it. Now their impatience was not the reason for their disobedience. Their impatience was just an indicator of how they felt about what the Lord defined as right and good. So they say to themselves, we don't really care about God's word. We don't really love God's word. Because if they had loved God's word, their foremost desire was to trust him and to do exactly what he said. If that was really where their hearts were, they could have waited for weeks until Moses came back. They would have prepared their hearts and worshipped and been attentive and stood and listened to the word of the Lord that they could hear. They would have prepared themselves spiritually. When Moses comes back down, oh, and he's been in the presence of God and he hears the word of the Lord, we need to be ready. Come on now, no foolishness. Kids, pay attention now. We're going to worship the Lord. If they really loved the word of God, if they really cared about what God had to say, that would have been their preparation. Five days, 10 days, 20 days. People are getting restless. God's speaking the law. They don't care. Hey, Aaron, come on. I got a ring here. Can you build us a God? And Aaron, the pastor, doesn't say, time out. 
No other gods, no graven images. We're not even going to go there. Sure, give me your rings. Let's fashion us a god. One of the greatest attempts at deception that the enemy will try to throw to us, and you've heard me say this before, I'm going to say it again, is to tell us that the the Bible is negotiable and subjective. This book is not negotiable. And this book does not hold selective truth. It's not open to what we want it to say. It's only open to what it says. One of the deceptions that the enemy wants to say is, you can choose what you want to obey, you can ignore what you don't, and you can nuance the rest. If it impinges on your personal freedom, if if it doesn't say something that you want it to say, if it seems too strict, well, just, you know, come on. Go Go to a passage that makes you feel good. But here's the problem. The Spirit of God doesn't give us that latitude. He doesn't make suggestions to us. He doesn't say, just consider this because it might have some benefit to you if you'd like to obey it. But, you know, it's just, this is just kind of a help for you. This, this, this is just, I, I'm just making some suggestions. You may want to think about it. What an arrogant, self-serving mindset that the enemy pushes that devalues the word of God. That's what Judah did. Look back at verse 10. It says, the word of the Lord became a reproach to them. The word literally means they mocked it as a disgrace. There are people in our country this morning that are mocking the word of God and calling it a disgrace. There are people that mock you because you believe in it and live by it. That's a reproach to the Lord. But Jeremiah kept giving them The word of the Lord. The phrase the word of the Lord is used 255 times in the Bible. And in Jeremiah, he uses one-fifth of them. 52 times he says, here's the word of the Lord. Here's the word of the Lord. Here's the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is this. I want to give you the word of the Lord. Listen to the word of the Lord. When somebody repeats something that many times, we should probably say to ourselves, I better listen to that. But every time Jeremiah said, here's the word of the Lord, the people said, we don't care. Second problem, the fact that they were calloused about what God had said led them to circumvent God's plans and direction. They had shown signs of that even at the Red Sea when they accused Moses of purposely leading him into the wilderness to die. But it got even worse once they entered the promised land. You can look at it later. Don't turn now. But in Joshua chapter 7, when they get into the promised land and they capture Jericho by God's hand, they go to the next city of Ai And they expect the same result that happened in Jericho will happen in Ai. But when they had plundered Jericho, God specifically said to them, do not take the gold and silver and the bronze and the iron for yourself. Put it all in the treasury of the Lord. But some people didn't think that applied to them. God banned them from keeping it for themselves. But Achan and many others, it wasn't just Achan, 
The Bible says there were other sons of Israel that did this. They didn't take God's direction. They didn't think it was for them. So they took pieces of gold and silver and put it in their tents and hid it. So Israel, not knowing this is going on, goes to attack Ai, thinking they have the Lord's blessing, thinking it will be as easy as it was when they went to Jericho and walked around the city and blew the trumpets. So they go to Ai, and Joshua actually says, we don't need a full army this time. We've got the Lord. Let's just take 3,000 guys. And they go with 3,000 guys, and they attack, and they get whipped. 36 men die, and they have to run in retreat because they just got hammered. And Joshua's dumbfounded by it. And he pleads with the Lord and says, what is going on? Please show me why this didn't work. Why you weren't with us. And God says, there's deception in the camp. People tried to bypass my word and my leading, thinking there was no accountability and no consequences. Listen, God's will and God's guidance are not always easy. But we can be absolutely certain that if we defy it, things will be exponentially harder. You may think, well, Paul, it's a challenge to live by the word of God. I absolutely agree with you. It's a challenge to be holy in an unholy age. You bet. But not living that way, not striving after holiness, will make it far, far worse. And even worse than that, there is absolutely no way God will bless us when we do what is contrary to his word, no matter how justified or entitled we may think we are. We can get so full of ourselves and think that we know what's best. That's what Judah did. And that led to the third problem. Quickly, they thought they were clever. Which meant that they believed they had a better way than what God had established. Now, the examples from Scripture are too numerous to list. From Lot to Joseph's brothers to Aaron to Saul to Rehoboam to Ahab to Uzziah. It doesn't even include all the times the people result. Time and time again, instead of trusting the Lord's guidance and knowing without question that the Lord will always reveal what is best and most honoring to him, and that always comes back to his word, and it always comes back to Christ. Instead of believing that, they reformatted things according to their wisdom. They said, well, God's word's there, but, but we think we know better. Man always thinks he knows better than God. Goes back all the way to Genesis 3. Good example of this was back in the 40s when Dr. Spock wrote his famous book, and it was a book that drastically altered parenting styles and helped cultivate narcissism in several generations, and we're still counting Spock's theory was that if we allow children to express themselves and we withhold discipline because we have to withhold discipline because if you put discipline on a child's life, it will warp their little fragile ego. It was complete garbage, but people ate it up and they never challenged how illogical and wrong it was. And even Spock before he died, realized this. And here's what he said. We have reared a generation of brats. Parents aren't firm enough with their kids for fear of losing their love or incurring their resentment. This is a cruel deprivation that we 
excuse me, professionals have imposed on mothers and fathers. Of course, we did it with the best intentions. Of course, you did. We didn't realize until it was too late, shouldn't have taken you 50 years. We didn't realize until it was too late how our, listen, know-it-all attitude was undermining the self-assurance of parents. You think? Of course you were wrong. And sadly, the same thing happened to Christianity about 30 years ago. Dr. Spock's way of thinking was the driving motivation behind the alteration of churches and ministry philosophy, only instead of children, churches did it with the unsaved and the unchurched. We were told there's a new paradigm that we need to market the truth, to appeal to people by softening doctrine and de-emphasizing the word because people wanted to hear about their felt needs and we wanted to draw them in and we didn't want to do anything to lose their love or incur their resentment and we didn't want to challenge them in any way so let's just make them very comfortable. And innovation and marketing became central and numbers determined success more than depth of conviction or discipleship or strengthening somebody's faith. Personal responsibility for Bible study didn't matter. We just want to build community and be cutting edge and be consumer friendly. Someone described it this way. The mention of sin, salvation, and sanctification were taboo and replaced by Starbucks strategy and sensitivity. And tens of thousands, that's not an overstatement, tens of thousands of pastors ate it up and scores of churches changed their philosophy. And if you weren't one of them, honestly, you were looked down on and called a traditionalist and not relevant and old school. And as a pastor once said, and I've quoted this before, you cannot be clever and have Jesus be wonderful at the same time. And here's the problem with what we did. We did people no favor. We didn't help the unsaved. We didn't help the unchurched. And in fact, we harmed ourselves. The church became more shallow and selfish. Revival never broke out. And eventually everybody realized that disciples hadn't been made. And even those that founded this trend a couple years ago said, we made a mistake. Quote, we should have taught people to take responsibility for their spiritual growth. We should have taught them how to read the Bible between services. See, trends aren't reliable. Philosophy shifts that aren't based on the Word of God aren't reliable. The only thing that's reliable is the Word of God. And it may seem like an ancient path, and it may seem like we're out of touch but it is the only thing that we can trust in. It's the only thing that keeps us in the center of God's will. And instead of being clever, we need to be disciples. We need to follow after what the Word of God says. I know that's as basic as it gets, but that's the message God has for us today. And that leads to the fourth problem. When we don't do this, this is the fourth problem and we're done. This is both the underlying cause of the first three and an outgrowth of the first three. The fourth problem is the people of Judah craved what the world valued. They weren't content 
with God's blessing and God's sufficiency and God's provision. Instead, they cared about the things of the world and they chased after the next best thing, what was popular and what was provocative and what made them feel good. People and possessions and other gods. They were only willing to be satisfied by what appealed to them, not by what was pure and pleasing to the Lord. And don't forget, these were God's people. They stared at the two paths and they went after what was broad, what had flashing lights, what was glitzy, what promised against uh, reality, instant gratification. They didn't want to pursue the ancient past. Listen, that word might turn us off, but don't think of it as meaning old and out of date and not contemporary or relevant. The word of God never goes out of date. It is as relevant today as it was when Isaiah spoke it. And I would suggest to you it's even more relevant because we can look at it and see how it played out and learn from it. We have God's word with perspective. They didn't. So it's absolutely relevant. And it's not up to us to get caught up in the bright lights and the flashiness of how the enemy marks what's new and exciting. That's what happened. And I'm not being political here. Please understand my point. That's what happened in 2008. People got caught up in flash and they never asked any questions because that's how the enemy works. He doesn't want us to hear the timeless and solid truths of God's word, let alone study in them and live by them, let alone teach them and share them. But for us, there is only one path. There is only one path. It's old, and it's worn down, and it's been walked on by all the believers who have gone before us. And it may not fit with the trends And it may not seem all relevant and exciting and flashy, but it is God's way. So what is it that we're choosing? Are we chasing after the next thing? Are we ashamed of the ancient paths? Or are we saying, I will never hesitate to trust in God's word and live boldly by God's word and see the power of God's work And my life, it is so simple on this Labor Day weekend. It is so simple. All we have to do is follow. Let's close our eyes. I want to ask you just for a moment. I know you've listened a lot this morning. You've been very patient. But just for a moment more, let's just listen as the Spirit of God speaks to each of us. What is the Lord stirring in your heart this morning? What has He approached you about? He wants to teach you. He wants to teach me. And if he has found our ears open, what is he saying? Between you and him, between me and him, what is he calling us to? 
Maybe this morning you don't know him at all. Maybe you came here this morning not really knowing why you're here. Maybe somebody invited you. I'm glad they did. I'm glad you're here. What's the Lord saying to you this morning? Is he calling you to himself? You've been doing your own thing for a long time. It hasn't really brought you joy or peace. You're looking for answers. This morning, the answer is Jesus Christ. For all eternity, the answer is Jesus Christ. He died for your sins. He took the sacrifice for you. And He rose again to give you eternal life when you trust in Him. And this morning, it's really that simple. Turning away from your sin and trusting in Him as your Savior. And He will change you from old to new. I pray this morning, if that just described you, that right now where you sit, you would turn your heart to Christ and you would say, Lord, save me. I don't fully understand it, but I'll go talk to the pastor afterwards and we'll, we'll work through it. But Lord, I know I need you. I pray that's you this morning. Believer, maybe we're, we, we've been sliding. Maybe this message is for us, real specifically. I don't know. But maybe you see yourself in what Judah was doing. Maybe a couple of these areas really hit home. Oh, I call you back to walk the ancient paths. To follow after the word of the Lord, which is always good. Don't go another day. Don't go another day down that broad path. You're distracted right now. You're tempted by it. Turn away from it. Lord, we call on you today because we know you do the work of transformation. And we ask you now in the quietness of this room to continue to speak to our hearts and to show us what needs to change. What you can redeem and what you can transform. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the ancient paths in a time of confusion and a barrage of information, your word is steady. It's a rock. We can always rely on it. We thank you for it this morning. We praise you for your word. We thank you for your spirit who teaches us. We pray that we would be faithful to walk in holiness, to please you in all that we do. Lord, help us this morning. So many things are around us. There's so much confusion in the air. Give us wisdom. Father, thank you for what you've already started to do and will continue to do in our lives. We praise you and we love you in Jesus' name.